Good morning. I'm Bob Walker. I'm one of the pastors here at Covenant Life. I get to preach every once in a while, and I'm glad to be here to preach this morning. It's a great privilege to preach this particular passage. You know, this New Testament book was written as a letter to Timothy. And of course, when it was written, it didn't have chapter divisions and it didn't have verse, verses listed by every sentence. But even so, I believe this passage stood out in that letter. I can imagine that Paul set this section off either with space or indentations or underlines because this section's just a little bit different than the rest of the letter. In verse 14, Paul again makes this a personal letter. He shares his heart, his desires. He speaks of his hopes to see Timothy soon. And he shares what is on his heart for Timothy and the church at Ephesus because he fears he may be delayed in his journey to be with them again soon. So this little section of scripture, just three verses, is going to help us answer the most important questions of our life. Questions so fundamental that everyone on earth must find a way to answer these questions. If not explicitly in words, then at least practically in actions. And I'm going to give you four of these questions. And we'll use a couple of the questions as sermon points. But I want you to make note of these questions here at the beginning. And then at the end of this passage, at the end of this sermon... We'll briefly review how this passage answers the question. So first question, who am I as a believer? Who are we as a church? You know, how do I begin to even think about myself? Where do I fit in in this world? What's my identity? So first question is, who am I? The second question is, what should I do? You know, how am I to conduct myself? What's good for me to do? And what should I avoid? So what should I do? The third question, you know, how was I created? How was I made? Do I owe obedience to someone else because of how I was created and made? And then the fourth question is, what's my mission? What's my goal, my aim, my purpose? So this short passage will answer these questions. So you know, this passage is going to answer some important questions for us, but it also demands a response from us. God is speaking to us through this passage, and we can ignore God's word, or we can respond to God's word. We can continue to live our way, follow our own heart, rule our own lives, and then accept the full consequences of choosing that path, or we can live under God's rule. We can turn from our own path. We can turn from sin. We can turn from our disobedience and then turn to Christ and trust in Christ's provision on our behalf, and then after that, follow God in obedience. So we obey not so that God will save us, but we can obey because God has saved us. So this sermon is going to have three sections. The first section looks at how we should act in the household of God, how we should act. The second section answers the question of who we are. So who are we? And then the third section answers the question of how we were made, how 
were we made? So first, how should we act? Paul helps Timothy, the Ephesian church, and us understand precisely why he wrote this letter. Verse 14, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one should act in the household of God. Paul is writing so that Timothy and the Ephesian church will know how to conduct themselves. And I'm not going to talk in detail about what things are included in the letter. We're going to be hearing several sermons. We already have that, that talk about those. But I do want to just summarize in a couple of different ways. So how should we act? Remember chapter 1, avoid false teaching. Keep the faith. Chapter 2 and 3, behave properly as men and women and pastors and deacons in the church. That's what we've studied together so far. In the next few weeks, we're going to learn about being careful about those who fall away, disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness and preaching the word. We're going to learn to honor widows and, and to take care about our elders and walk in godliness. If you want to know how, know how to act, Paul tells us so that we will know. But in the middle of these commands and instructions, Paul shifts gears. He goes from third-person commands that we've read. A woman must. An overseer must. Deacons likewise must. To, now he writes, I, Paul, I am writing these things to you, Timothy, hoping to come to you before long. This is personal. This is a real man who planted a real church that he loved, who left a young man that he loved to lead that church, and he's writing out of love and concern for them all to tell them how to live out the life that they began when Paul preached the gospel to them. He says in verse 15, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one should act in the household of God. So how should one act? If I had to sum up Paul's instructions in 1 Timothy in one word, that word would be godliness. This is a letter about godliness. The word godliness is used nine times in this short letter. Godliness, examples of godliness, warnings against godlessness pervade the rest of the letter. So what is godliness? It means devotion to God. It's piety. It's well-directed reverence. It's the outward expression of the inward piety of our hearts. It's a life of worship. It's the proper attitudes and actions of one who's a member of the household of God. But you know, it's not automatic. It requires effort. In 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 5, Paul tells Timothy, it's possible for evil men to even have a form of godliness, an appearance of godliness, although they've denied its power. And so you look at the letter of 1 Timothy from the perspective of this theme, this godliness. The letter begins by condemning the opposite of godliness, false teachers and immoral men. He gives us examples of godliness. I'm going to read one from chapter 1, verse 12. Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy 
because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. This is about godliness. The Lord strengthens us for godliness. He responds to our faith in him. He puts us into service. He shows us mercy. We walk in the grace of our Lord in faith and love because we're in Christ Jesus. Godliness is commanded. Just a little further down in verse 18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience. This is godliness. Fighting the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience. Paul goes on to describe godliness in the church concerning men and women and pastors and deacons because godliness encompasses the right ordering of his church. Godliness encompasses the right ordering of his church. In the following weeks, we're going to see godliness commanded and described in the remainder of 1 Timothy. And I'm just going to read two passages that we're going to cover in the following weeks. So turn to uh, chapter 4 starting in verse 6. Paul writes, In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of a little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things. Since it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come, it's a trustworthy statement deserving a full acceptance. For it is for this that we labor and strive because we fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. Paul is telling Timothy to teach the church to be godly. Turn, your, turn the page of your Bible over to chapter 6 and verse 3. Paul warns, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. A little further in verse 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. So, how should we act in the household of God? 1 Timothy answers that question in detail. More detail than our world wants to hear. And sometimes more detail than we even want to hear. But how should we act? We, the people of God, should walk in godliness. So who are we? Let me uh, read again, starting in chapter 3, verse 14. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how to act in the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So who are we? Paul answers this question in three ways. First, we're the household of God. 
We're the church of the living God. We are the pillar and support of the truth. Let's look at each of these three descriptions. We are the household of God. Now, this term held a much higher importance to Paul, Timothy, and the Ephesian church than it does to us, or probably to most of us, I think. You know, I was on a trip recently meeting new people, and they wanted to get to know me, to discover my identity. And so what do you think they asked? You know, what would you ask? They say, they ask, what do you do? I'm a pastor. Where are you from? I'm from Tampa. And so my identity was established. I'm a pastor from Tampa. I asked them the same, same kinds of questions. That's, that's how we think of identity. So if you wanted to know something about a person's identity in biblical times, you would ask them about the family they belong to. The family connection was the key to understanding identity. Think about the begat sections of the Bible. They illustrate how important establishing that family connection was. What family does a person belong to? Who begat that person? Who were they begat by? What family does that person belong to? We live in an individualistic culture, and sometimes we fail to see how the world viewed family identity and how much of the world still views it today. Historically, we're in the minority. But to illustrate this family connection, maybe from another scripture, you can turn in your Bible or you can read on the screen. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 39. So John chapter 8, verse 39. We're looking for that family, that household connection. And Jesus is responding to the Pharisees. It says, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. The children of the household do the deeds of the father. Continue in verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. For Paul, for Timothy, for John, family determined identity and determined the behavior of the members of that family. So what's a household? A household has a father. The household originates from the father and takes his name. In the Bible, the church is most often described as the children of God. A household has children who identify with and bear the family name of the father. The father protects, feeds, gives direction to the household, and the members of the household love the father. They obey the father. They represent the father to the outside world or those outside the household. The household performs actions in the name of the father and in the name of other members of the household. The other members of the household, they're our brothers and sisters. And these two terms are used to describe us in Scripture over 100 times. We are adopted members of God's household because we are in Christ. Christ is the only begotten Son, and we are in Christ. Often, I find, probably most of us find, that repeated words help us understand what we are reading and understand a particular passage. So look at verse 15. 
chapter 3, verse 15. There's a word that's repeated three times in verse 15. Let me read. I write so that you will know how one should act in the household of God. The church of the living God. The pillar and support of the truth. We are not just a household. We are the household of God. God is our father. We are born. We're born again in him and for him. We originate from him and represent him. We are the household of God. Also, we are the church of the living God. Now, this phrase is literally the assembly of the living God. A church, an assembly, an ecclesia was a group of citizens called out from a city, typically a Greek city, to deliberate and conduct business. So a herald was sent into the city by the leader or by the king to call the citizens out of all the peoples of the city, the slaves, the aliens, the children. Out of this group, the citizens of the city would respond to the call of the herald and they would gather together. So we the church of the living God are the citizens of the kingdom of God. We responded to the call of our king and he's creating this assembly, this church. And our king is the living God. We're not just any assembly. We are the assembly of the living God. Now the term living God is used richly through scripture. And I'm just gonna give you two examples. The first, and you don't need to turn there, but I'll read Psalm 42 verse two. It says, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Jeremiah 10, verse 10 says, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. So think about this. Ephesus, where Timothy is living, where the church in Ephesus is, is dwelling it's a thoroughly pagan city, a city that served a myriad of dead gods. So how appropriate that the assembly, the church, was called out of this evil place by the living God, the God who in Christ supplies streams of living water. God is assembling his church to represent himself, to walk in godliness as a citizen of the kingdom or as a son and daughter of the living God's household. The church is also the pillar and support of the truth. So what is a pillar? Now there's a surprising number of references to pillars in the Bible, well over a hundred. So pillars can be important both for the message that they proclaim and the architectural function they perform. Both meanings are important and apply to us here. The importance of the pillar is in what it represents or calls attention to and what it physically supports. So Tanya and I were walking in a park in Istanbul a few years ago. So Istanbul's just a very crowded city, but we found ourselves enjoying a very uncrowded walk and it was a welcome relief. And in that park was a tall column, strikingly tall, set off apart alone. It was a pillar. And you know what? It drew our eyes to it. It captured our attention. It made us wonder what it was there for. You see, pillars by their very nature do that. 
There are two kinds of pillars in the Bible, those that support a building and those that are freestanding. The freestanding pillars often serve to mark a spot. They are monuments to draw passerby's attention to a location. Jacob placed a pillar on Rachel's grave. Jacob erected a stone at Bethel to bear witness to his encounter with God. Standing stones and pillars bore witness to covenants. Pillars stood in front of Solomon's temple. And these pillars were often inscribed with words indicating their significance. But pillars are also structural. They hold buildings up. You remember Samson? He was chained between two pillars. But even structural pillars often carried meaning. Structural pillars are inscribed. They're adorned. If you go to the Parthenon Museum in Athens, it's a beautiful building. You can look through the windows of the museum up the hill and see the Parthenon just in a panorama in front of you. And then you can turn around in that same museum and you can see the inscriptions and the adornments that came from those pillars, that came from that building, and they're displayed in the museum. And you can see the meaning that was attached to those pillars. You can, you can learn about the dead Greek gods and you can learn about Athena. And you can look in, through that window and up the hill and you can see how they're supporting this beautiful structure. Pillars supported the temple. Pillars supported God's temple. Paul in Galatians 2.9 referred to Jesus' brother James and then the apostles Peter and John as pillars of the church. And this makes sense if the church is the temple of God. And this illustration was particularly apropos to the Ephesians. The temple of Diana in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Its defining feature, its pillars. 127 in all, each the gift of a king. All were made of marble. Many were studded with jewels and overlaid with gold. And each pillar represented the king who donated it. The pillars called attention to Diana, the Greek goddess, or probably Roman goddess, sorry, and supported the entire structure of her temple. So if the church is a pillar in support of the truth, this means the church is to uphold the truth of the gospel. We are the pillar in support of the truth. We both call attention to the truth and uphold the truth. So what's the truth? It's the gospel that made us. It unites us with Christ. The truth is divine revelation. It's the truth of the gospel. It's the content of our faith. So here's some descriptions of the truth just from what we've studied in 1 Timothy so far. It is the commandment of God our Savior, chapter 1, verse 1. It is the apostles' instruction, chapter 1, verse 5. It includes God's law, chapter 1, verse 8. It is the glorious gospel of the blessed God, chapter 1, verse 11. It is knowable and can save men, chapter 2, verse 7. In our passage today, it is the mystery of godliness, 316. And also, it's Jesus Christ himself, also from chapter 3, verse 16. The one who said, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John 14, 6. Let's look at the relationship between Christ, his church, 
and the truth about him, the gospel. I'll just make three points here. There is a divine connection between Christ and his church. A theological term we often use to describe this is union with Christ. You probably remember seeing the words as you're reading through scripture, Christ in you, or you are in Christ. These expressions describe our union with Christ. Theologian John Murray wrote, union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It underlies every aspect of redemption. Anthony Heckema wrote that once you have your eyes opened to this concept of union with Christ, you will find it almost everywhere in the New Testament. There is a supernatural, a divine connection between Christ and his church. But you know, there's also a supernatural divine connection between Christ and the gospel. The good news about him, the truth. And this connection is so fundamental that Christ said he is the way, the truth, and the life. The apostle Paul, I'm sorry, the apostle John described Jesus this way in John chapter 1. Right at the beginning of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Later, John continued in verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ is the truth that is not understood, not comprehended by this world unless the Lord opens our eyes, opens our heart. So there's a divine connection between Christ and his church. There's a divine connection between Christ and the gospel, the good news about him. There is a divine supernatural connection between God's people and the truth. We were born again when we heard the truth and believed it. We have been born of the good news, the truth of who Christ is and what he's done on our behalf. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. God made us those who are spiritually dead. He made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him. And then God in his mercy made us able to understand and respond to the truth to respond to Christ. And when we repented and believed, he raised us up together with him. Ephesians chapter two, verses one through seven. We are the pillars in support of the truth. But before we walk, talk about how we walk out being that pillar, that support, let's look at how Paul specifically describes the truth to Timothy. And this will answer our last question. How were we made? How were, we, how were we made? We, the church of the living God, we were made by the power of the gospel. We heard and believed. We trusted completely in the truth. Here's Paul's description of the truth. So let's read in verse 16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit. 
He was seen by angels. He was proclaimed among the nations. He was believed on in the world and taken up in glory by common confession without controversy to say the same thing as this is not disputed. Recall, Paul wrote this letter so that we would know, so that we would know how to act. Great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the truth. A mystery is a hidden sacred truth that's revealed by God. Paul already spoke of the mystery of faith in chapter 3, verse 8. And it says, Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience is godliness. The mystery of the faith in verse 9 is the truth in verse 15. It's the mystery of godliness in verse 16. Paul is giving us insight into this divine union between Christ, the gospel, and his church. Now, just a note about this section. This is a, most scholars seem to, to believe that this is a hymn or a poem. And uh, it was either written by Paul and used here, or he was using this already existing hymn or poem. This is evident from the uniformity of structure, the rhythm, the parallelism. You can look at these six statements and they're divided into three couplets just to show the scope of how great Christ is and who he is. There's flesh and spirit. There's heavenly angels and the nations of the world. There's the world and there's glory. He who was revealed in the flesh, God became man. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The eternal son emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of God. Christ is the image of the invisible God who has reconciled us to himself in his fleshly body. God became flesh to save us. He bore our sins in his body. He was vindicated in the spirit vindicated to justify, to declare righteous. He was proven to be right in the spirit. Romans 1.4 says Christ Jesus was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Holy Spirit conceived Christ. The Holy Spirit descended upon him at his baptism. Christ promised that the spirit would come in his name and help his disciples. The Spirit confirmed the truth of the gospel in Acts 2. Christ was vindicated. He was declared righteous, and he was confirmed as the Son of God by the Spirit. Seen by angels. Seen. This word also means visited by and attended to. Just remember, angels foretold the birth of Christ. Angels proclaimed his birth when it occurred. Angels ministered to him during his temptation. Angels strengthened him before his crucifixion. An angel rolled away the stone. Christ's ministry was seen by angels. Now, angels surround his throne in heaven. Paul cites the angel's testimony 
of who Christ is. He was seen by angels. He was also proclaimed among the nations. This is written by Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, to the nations. Remember the Great Commission. Go and make disciples among the nations. The book of Acts is the story of Christ's church, his household, his pillars, proclaiming him among the nations. We know that God's kingdom will be proclaimed among all nations because his people, his church, his assembly will consist of those from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And how did these become followers of Christ? By hearing and believing the gospel, the truth about Christ. Christ has been and will be proclaimed among the nations. Christ is believed on in the world. And many of us are here today because we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. The church was established at the beginning of Acts when Peter preached a message that ended, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, whom you crucified, Luke went on to record that at the conclusion of the sermon, those who had received his word and were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. The household of God is made up of those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He was taken up in glory. Let me just read from Acts chapter 1. After he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. The writer of Hebrews describes this this scene this, this way. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions, in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. He was taken up in glory, proving that his work was sufficient. It was sufficient to save us. He was approved by the Father. God's just wrath for our sins was satisfied. So in conclusion, and don't worry, this is a long long conclusion. There's three points of application I want to talk about. We should tremble before the greatness and holiness of God. The reality that we made ourselves enemies of God by disobeying him should scare us. It should sicken us. You know, even one small sin makes us guilty and deserving of eternal punishment. But you know what? We have all been guilty of the greatest sin of all. Even if you're in this room and came to Christ as a young age, you have committed the greatest sin of all. At some point, you failed to believe in, you failed to trust in, 
you failed to rely on the finished work of Christ. And that is a sin for which God ultimately condemns men. Some of you have a testimony of turning from a life of wickedness, of drugs, sex, dishonesty. But all of us have either repented of the greatest sin, the sin of unbelief, or we're still living in that sin. We should tremble, church, we should tremble before the holiness of God. But we can be joyful because of what Christ did for us. God became man. He lived the perfect life we should have lived. Then he died, taking our rightful punishment upon himself, on his body. Then he was taken up in glory, demonstrating that God was satisfied with Jesus' sacrifice. The truth of the gospel demands a response from us. And you can either reject the facts of the gospel and carry on with an unbelieving life, or you can cry out for salvation, a salvation only found by repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ. You know, you're not saved by walking an aisle to the front. You're not saved by praying a prayer. Scripture says you're saved when you repent and believe. And I'm pleading with you now. You've heard the gospel in this passage. If you have not yet trusted God, if you've not put your, trace, your trust, your faith in Christ, do it now. If you don't know how, if you have questions, come talk to me. I think this morning I'm going to stay up here at the front for a little while after the service. Please come find me if you are trusting the Lord for the first time or you want to do that. You can talk to any one of the other pastors. They'll probably mostly be out front. And you can find them after the service. You can, talk to any, you can talk to any member of this church. They know the gospel. They can speak the gospel. Do not continue in sin against God and risk a very much deserved eternity in hell by refusing to repent and believe. Don't wait. The second point of application this same gospel message calls Christians to act properly in the household of God, to act in a way that pleases the head of the household. Church, walk out your faith as one who is in God's family. Now, don't make 1 Timothy a rule book. God made you an adopted son or daughter in his household, in his family. He called you to be a citizen of the kingdom. You're already part of the assembly, part of the church. You don't have to work to get in. In fact, no one can work to get in. God gave us this family status. We call it grace. You don't work for it. But because you have been adopted, because you love him, obey him. Walk in godliness. Here's what Jesus said in John 14. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and disclose myself to him. There's that divine connection. We don't merit Christ's love by loving him or by obeying him. But because we love him, we can demonstrate our love for him in our obedience. And when we love Christ, 
we're going to be loved by the Father. We're going to be loved by Christ. And Christ is going to disclose himself. He's going to up, open himself to us. Beautiful promises. Think about how you are a pillar and support of the truth in this world. I mean, you're a pillar of the temple of the living God. How do we walk that out? And I think the first thing we do is show up. I mean, just think about, you've all seen pictures of the Parthenon, beautiful building on top of the hill. The pillars are lined up. They're supporting the structure. There's a beauty. They, they actually tell a message. It would be ridiculous for one of those pillars to separate itself from the rest of the temple. Do we do that, church? Do we sit in judgment over the church? Do we stand with the world and lob accusations at the church? Do we just come and worship with other believers to join in the family gathering as the household of God? God would have us gather together. Do not neglect gathering with other believers. If you're a pillar and supporter of the truth, are you supporting the world's message? Or are you supporting God's truth? When you post something online, is the gospel clearly proclaimed? Or are you packaging a worldly message in Christian words? Will your words clearly show people that you are a pillar and support of the gospel? Do our words and actions signify to the world that you are a child of God's household? When someone looks at you, do they clearly see a pillar of the temple of God? Or do you seek to stand alone, even stand with the world against the living God's church by the words you say and the actions you take? Is that proper behavior for a member of God's household? In church, I know we have sinned in our online behavior. We have, and it, we need to repent. I say, repent. I say to myself, repent and walk in godliness. Brothers and sisters, we're members of God's household. We're his assembly. We're pillars and supports of the truth. Walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And I know it isn't easy to be unstained by the world. And we're tempted to find our identity in other households. We can find in the, our identity in the latest worldly lie. We can find our identity in our race, in our culture, in our sexuality, and this should not be. Repent and be content to find your identity in Christ, to be one of the household of God. There's another application, a direct application for many of us. Only 46 of our members have been here over five years. Many of you in here today are looking for a church home, and we are very glad that you're here with us today. But I'm also mindful that many of you will move away, and you will need to look for a new church home in the next few years. So how do you do it? Let me suggest you use one question that will help you in your decision to find a church, and here it is. Can I uphold, support, and identify with the gospel in this local church? I'll say it again. Can I uphold, support, and identify with the gospel 
in this local church. Don't go looking for a church based solely on what you can receive. What's your role in this church? You're a pillar. Can you work as a pillar in this church? Can, can you be a pillar and a buttress of the faith, of the truth? You're a pillar that points people to Christ. Will people be confused at all about the message of the gospel if you join with a particular church? God has called us to walk in godliness. We're to put aside false teaching. We know how men and women and pastors and deacons should act in the household of God. We know our roles. If we are standing with a church that does not align itself with God's truth, that doesn't act like a member of God's household, do we call God's truth into question? Can we support the gospel in any church that we join with? Do you need to compromise on the truth in a church in order to have your needs met? As you're searching for a church, search for a church where you can be a pillar, where you can support the truth, where you can identify with the truth and point people to Christ. If you're looking for a church primarily to meet your own needs, then this church will probably not be the church for you. We're part of the household of God. We welcome other members of God's household here. And we even call upon those outside God's household to repent and believe and become a part of God's household. We don't attempt to attract anyone here with anything other than the good news of Jesus Christ. So repent and believe and then come help us proclaim, support, and uphold the good news. So in closing, what about those four questions? Let's answer them. Who am I? Who are we? We're the household of God. We're the church of the living God. The pillar and support of the truth. That's who we are. What should we do? What should I do? Act like a member of God's household. Honor the Father. Obey him. Love him. Walk in godliness. How were you created? If you're in Christ, if you're part of his church, how was I created? I heard the gospel and I believed. I was born again. God created us, his church, his assembly, through the preaching of the gospel. He recreated me and joined me with his other children in creating a church for himself, a church of the living God. So what's my mission? What's my goal, my aim, my purpose? My mission is the mission of the head of my household, my father. I glorify him. I accomplish the work he gives me to do. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So as I pray for us in closing, take some time to consider how you will respond to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll have a moment of silence just after I pray for you to respond to God before we sing together. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, just a, what a rich, rich reminder. You are God. You have created us. 
we owe you obedience. It's, it's due to you, and we, we fail. And even after you saved us and we seek to walk in obedience, we fail. And yet you forgive us. And you, you forgive us because Christ's work on our behalf was sufficient. And just the richness of this passage, you teaching us about yourself and you teaching us about us. So I pray, I pray that each of us responds to you this morning. I pray that if someone has not trusted in you, that they would trust, they would repent and believe. For those of us who are of your household, I pray that we would walk in godliness and in obedience. And we need help. We, we fail to do it on our own. We need your help. And you, you richly give it in your word, by your spirit, by, by other believers, other pillars around us. And so I pray, I pray that we would not be coming to your house seeking solely for things that, that would serve us, that would meet what we feel like we need. May we truly come to worship you. And so we, we have a few minutes left here, Lord. I pray that we would be praying with one voice, that we would be singing with one voice, glorifying you. And so in all things, we thank you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.